Welcome to Salute to Strength, the Building Veteran Healthy Communities podcast. I'm your host, Aaron Netty. I'm a Navy nurse and public health student at UNC Chapel Hill. Today on the show, I have Mike Bressler, a former combat veteran in the Marine Corps. He holds a Master of Social Work and a Master of Public Health degree from the University of North Carolina. Mike's interests are veteran health across multiple domains related to veteran mental health, veteran suicide, and other aspects of public health that allow veterans to lead meaningful and healthy lives. Welcome to the show, Mike. I'm excited to have you join us on our podcast today. How's your week going? It's not too bad, man. Um, you know, work keeps me busy. Yeah. Uh, luckily, uh, next week I have a uh, presentation for the Governor's Working Group in North Carolina, and I'll be uh, speaking on an expert panel about public health issues as well as uh, veterans benefits. So I'm really looking forward to that. So, cool. you know, preparing for that, um, continuing to work on this project that we have going on, um, you know, doing suicide prevention work as they do for the VA yeah. and uh, keeping busy and taking sounds care of the like kids. It. Sounds yeah. like, and you have a couple kids. I do. I have a uh, five-year-old and a three-year-old, okay. both boys. Yeah. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a lot to keep you busy. That's right. Tell me a little bit more about the governor's working group. So governor's working group, they were put together um, back in, I'm not exactly sure. It was like the mid two thousands. Okay. Um, and they are a group of people who are, uh, interested in veterans issues at the higher level, at like the policy level. Okay. Uh, we have the uh, Secretary of Military and Veterans Affairs. His name is uh, Walter Gaskin. Okay. And he has a direct pipeline to the governor. And that's kind of how the whole thing started. And uh, we have different chairs. Um, we have different subcommittees. And we all work towards the common, common goal of um, improving veterans' lives in the state of North Carolina. Very good. And how often do you meet? Uh, I think once every three months with the the higher echelon people, mm-hmm. and then um, we meet about once every six weeks or so with the subcommittees. Great. Hey, Mike, uh, can you tell me a little bit about um, your life before the military, before you joined? Yeah, sure. Uh, I grew up in uh, right and around Scranton, Pennsylvania. Um, my father was a Vietnam veteran. Uh, but I grew up with two brothers and a mom. We lived in a very small house, so... When I graduated high school, I didn't have a lot of opportunity. It was uh, right after September 11th. September 11th actually happened during my senior year of high school. Oh, well. Yeah, so right when I was transitioning out, so that happened. So obviously, we were all fired up, and we wanted to go. Pretty much everybody I knew wanted to go. Um, On top of that, I didn't have a lot of prospects, you know, within Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, because there's just not a lot up there. Yeah. And I never felt like it was going to be something that was going to be a long term place for me to live. I couldn't see myself raising a family there. So I joined the Marine Corps in 2002. Okay. Tell me about your experience in the Marine Corps. Yeah, sure. So I originally went to the recruiter um, and I told him I wanted to be in a non combat MOS. Okay. Uh, I walked past the Navy, I walked past the Air Force, and I walked past the Army, walked straight into the Marines, and I was like, I want to sign up now. And the guy's like, well, you just made my job very easy. Yeah. Um, and I told him I wanted to do non-combat MOS. He guaranteed me the field of artillery. He told me I was going to be a fire direction control specialist. And uh, when I got to boot camp, because they had shortages in different areas, um, 
I ended up becoming a forward observer, which is somebody who is in direct combat. Um, I didn't really understand what it was, but I was like, you know, yes, drill, drill, you know, let's, yes, sir. Uh, the drill instructor kind of told me what I wanted to do or what I was going to do. Um, so I got to, um, got finished with boot camp, went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma for basic forward observer training, went to, um, San Diego, um, to do our naval gunfire spot school where we learned to control naval gunfire the 554s that kind of thing and then i went to the fleet and uh, i was with third battalion 10th marines um initially we went to went on a udp to okinawa came back for okinawa i went to fort sill to do some training i came back and that's when i went to iraq okay Uh, what year was that 2005. 2005. Mm-hmm. Where were you stationed at that time? Alkaim. Uh, Alkaim is in the Syrian, uh, right near the Syrian border. It's in the Al Anbar province of Iraq. Um, during that time, we had a huge influx of insurgents that were coming through the Syrian border. Um, we found lots of different people that were trying to fight us. Uh, we had Sudanese people coming in, people from all of the Middle Eastern countries, and you know their ID just said jihad. Um, so we were involved in, you know, three major combat operations while we were out there, uh, operation Matador, operation spear and operation quick strike Matador being the biggest one. Yeah. Um, that was basically clearing everything from our AO kicking in a lot of doors, you know, mm-hmm. we'd, um, we'd sent out pamphlets before we went in to ensure that we were only going to fight the insurgency. Yeah. Um, but unfortunately there were some people that, um, were caught in the crossfire. Um, Operation Spear was another one. We uh, There was a town called Carabola, and we pushed uh, all the way from the south of Carabola to the north of Carabola, all the way to the tip. We called it the shark's fin. If you happen to look at a map of it, it's like a shark's fin. Or, or shark fin, rather, shark fin. And, um, yeah, that that was some intense combat for sure. We blew the locks off every door. We cleared lots of houses. We took lots of, ca- lots of casualties, lots of IEDs, lots of that kind of thing. So yeah. um, definitely not the, the best time in life. But, um, you know, you learn real quick to uh, to respond to situations. And uh, you learn that um, regardless of what's going on around you, the people that you can trust are the people on your left and your right. Yeah. And you were 21, 22? 22. 22 yeah. years 22 old. 22 years old at the time. I was so a, young. Yeah, I was a corporal. A corporal. Yep. Okay. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> tell me about when you got back from your deployment. I had a plan before I was going to, uh, before I was going to Iraq, I wanted to become an officer. Mm-hmm. So they had some sort of program. The name escapes me right now, but um, I think it was called MEOP or something, but MESEP uh, is one that we MESEP have. maybe. Okay, yeah. MESEP. Um, and I wanted to be an officer. Uh, but when I went to Iraq and I experienced everything that I experienced, when I came home, I was just glad to be back on American soil again. And, uh, you know, when I got home initially, things were great. I mean, I had a girlfriend that stuck with me. and She's my wife now. I've been with her for almost 20 years. Okay. Um, and she stuck with me through the entire deployment. When I came home, I, I just wanted to be with her. Mm-hmm. That was it. Um, unfortunately... You know, when it was time to do leave afterwards, they kept us on base for about a month. It was kind of for no reason. But, um, you know, that's the Marine Corps for you. Yeah. They create angry dogs, right? I mean, that's yeah. where we just need to be able to fight at all times. We get pissed off at each other for some reason. And, you know, it, it just works. It just mm-hmm. works. Yeah. Um, so I um, I wasn't able to go on leave immediately. But, you know, I went on a little vacation, came mm-hmm. back. 
I was in the Marine Corps for about another year or so, okay. and then I moved back to Pennsylvania to start uh, work. Start at, start at Penn State University. Okay. <clears throat> uh, can you describe your transition out of the military? So you you got out about a year later, and then you moved directly over to Pennsylvania. Yeah, uh, actually, while I was in terminal leave, so oh, wow. for, yes, for those who you don't who don't know what terminal leave is, is, you could save up your military time and you can transition out early, and they call that terminal leave. Um, I'll tell you, I'll never forget it, man. Uh, when I transitioned out of the military, I was standing on the third floor of our barracks, HP five hundred five, and I remember, remember talking to another Marine. And he was saying, you know, just remember the grass isn't any greener, you know, and I was thinking, oh, hell no, civilian society is going to be great. I'm going to go out there. I'm going to do everything I want to do. You know, it's going to be awesome. Nobody's going to tell me what I need to do, blah, blah, blah. I was really excited for it. So, you know, initially I, I during terminal leave, went to Penn State, found out that they had a, um, they had classes starting up while I was on terminal leave. I was like, hell yeah, I'll go to that. Right. Yeah. Um, and initially the transition was excellent. I mean, I really I thought it was great for about the first month. And then after about that first month, I started to recognize that, you know, there wasn't really anybody in my social connections to kind of help me understand what the process was. I knew I had to get a place to live. I never cooked. You know, I lived in a barracks, so like I didn't know how to cook. Yeah. You know, I didn't know how to shop for groceries, really. You, you get everything provided to you when you're in the Marine Corps, when you're enlisted um, up to a certain time, if you re-enlist and certainly you live out in the community or if you're married, but I was a single guy in the military, so I didn't know all the, any of those skills. I didn't know anything about budgeting. I didn't know anything about, you know, saving money, the importance of it. So I, I just didn't really understand. And initially I thought that those um, college students that I was with were going to admire the things that I did. And that was not true at all. Um, I as a matter of fact, while I was at Penn State, I was a math tutor. And I remember one of the people tapped me on the shoulder and say, hey, kid, you know, and I was like, who the hell are you calling kid? You know, like, yeah. but they I mean, they're 18 to 24 year old college students. They've never been in the military. They don't understand the things that we go through in the military. So that was the initial transition. After all, that was when the problems really started to happen. OK. And were you enrolled in school at that time? I was. Yeah. OK. Yeah. And were you married? No, I, I had a girlfriend. Actually, when I transitioned out to the military, out, out of the military, my wife, well, my girlfriend at the time, but I'll just, cons- I'll say my wife from now on, my wife went to the Peace Corps. So she was gone for about two years during the initial um, phase of my transition. Okay. Got it. So you were um, essentially by yourself at Penn State as a student, didn't really felt maybe a bit socially isolated, I guess, maybe from the rest of the students who are the 17, 18 year old, generally, mm-hmm. um, folks, um, you said that it was not until a year later or so that you started having issues when you got out of the military. That's right. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. The, the issues were, um, I remember I worked with a friend, uh, as an HVAC, con- uh, technician and, um, you know, we were in the middle of a job. And all of a sudden I started getting like this sweating and my heart started beating really fast and I didn't really understand what it was. I had to go to the customer's backyard, you know, kind of around the side of the house. And I'd later find out it was a panic attack, but I didn't know what I thought I was going to die, to be honest with you. So I, I didn't know what that was. And that's that's the first isolated incident I, incident I remember. Um, quickly, I learned 
and, and wrongfully, I learned that um, alcohol, you know, would be the thing that I could take a shot and I could avoid a panic attack. So, you know, of course, I started using that, you know, mm-hmm. as, a, as a way to self-medicate. Just shut your brain off. Just shut my brain off and, yeah. and kind of, you know, not worry about the panic attack. And that worked for a little while. And then the drinking started to come up. Anxiety started to come along with it. And then, you know, I was starting to have nightmares and I was starting to voice certain things that reminded me of the traumas that I uh, experienced when I was in Iraq. Um, I started to kind of socially isolate myself. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, it was a hell of a difficult transition uh, when I got out and, you know, years later, as a matter of fact, the first time that I went to Penn State, I actually dropped out. Okay. Yeah. And that was because of all the stuff that I was going through you know, sure. interpersonally. Um, it wasn't until 2012 that, you know, my wife gave me an ultimatum. She said, you need to stop this or, you know, I'm going to leave. And I mean, to the, at that point, it has got it had gotten so bad that um, I was drinking like a fifth of a fifth of bottle of vodka like a day, um, and I was a severe alcoholic. And uh, you know, she recognized I needed help. Obviously, she kept begging me for me to get help. But when she said she was going to leave, that was it for me. I was like, all right, I got to be on all. I got to be all in on this treatment yeah. and figure it out. Were you seeking help from the VA or any other means when you did get out? <laughs> I initially went to the VA back in 2008 because I was having some back pain. Okay. Um, they gave me some muscle relaxers, sent me on my way. Um, they did some screening questions about uh, mental health. But, you know, like like a lot of veterans, I was like, you know, I'm not talking about this stuff. Yeah. I was, there was st- still a very strong, st- strong stigma. Um and it was, you know, societal stigma as well as self-stigma. So, mm-hmm. you know, I was telling myself that, you know, if you admit to this, you're going to get locked up in the hospital and that's not going to be good for anybody. So I just, I just kept it, you know, as a secret for quite a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, you dealt with these problems kind of on your own in a way mm-hmm. with, with the use of alcohol um, and then didn't really see the VA for mental health care. Not at all. Not at no, all. No, okay. No. Got it. Were there any other resources that you felt you could turn to during that time? Yeah. My friends who were alcoholics. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Got it. So, um, you yeah. know, they'd be like, Hey, have a drink, you know? And I'm like, all right. So, I mean, that didn't help out that well, yeah. that much, you know? One of these like high school friends or like college yeah. or college friends. Or- yeah. When I transitioned out, um, it was high school friends that, that you know, I We're still, still in the area. Exactly. And I yeah. out with them and they didn't have any life goals either. Yeah. Um, not, not to say that they wouldn't have life goals, you know, later on. I mean, we were in our early twenties. I mean, that's kind of what you do when you're early twenties, you're figuring it all out. Right. Yeah. Um, so that, that was that. And then, um, when I failed out of school, I went to, uh, I actually moved to back to Durham. For actually, no, no, Washington. I'm sorry. I moved to Washington, D.C. with my wife because she got a job up there um, okay. in the public health field. And um, my father in law knew someone who worked at the Durham, the, not the Durham. My father in law knew somebody who worked at the uh, D.C. VA Medical Center. Okay. And it reached out and said, Is there anything that we can do to help him? You know, and um, they had this program called Compensated Work Therapy, which is basically you could. You can work for the VA while you're getting treatment at the VA. Um, and what I ended up doing was, you know, pushing people around in wheelchairs, you know, doing transportation to the hospital. And I loved it. 
Yeah. I loved it, man. It was, you know, you, you get a good conversation with a veteran. To, it didn't matter their color. It didn't matter their age. Everybody understood each other. We all spoke the same language. I finally felt connected. Yeah. And that's when I started to really get my, my calling. Um, <clears throat> and then this job became available called a peer support specialist. Okay. And that's um, people who, who were, are in recovery or have recovered from mental illness. In my case, PTSD, alcoholism, that kind of thing. Um, and it was helping veterans understand what the issues are in their lives and then utilizing your personal recovery story to be able to connect with them on a, on a human level and try to n- nudge them in the direction towards treatment to see what would be most helpful for them. I, i.e. saying like, you know, they're having a problem with, with, you know, alcohol or whatever. It's like, you know, well, you know, I remember when I was, you know, struggling with alcohol, the first thing that I did, was I called AA, you know, that kind of thing, just giving them pointers to trying to plant the seed that mental health is important and stigma doesn't need to exist within your mind. So that was kind of the turning point for you. You felt like towards what you, what you do now. That was absolutely the turning point. Yeah. When okay. I, yeah, I met somebody up in DC and I like to mention her name's Maria Lorente. And, uh, she, I know she works in a big, um, position in the VA now, but she was really capstone in kind of helping me get myself straightened out. Was she with the peer support group that you talked about? Well, she was the assistant chief of staff for mental health services. Okay. Um, but she was a huge advocate for peer support. Very good. From peer support, uh, the peer support groups that you uh, were a part of, what was next for you? Moving. Okay. So I went to a conference in Orlando, Florida for peer support. And I met somebody by the name of Julie McCormick. Julie McCormick is now, she's the chief of the mental health service line for the Durham VA Medical Center. And uh, I met her. Um, she did a presentation and I found out she was from Durham and my wife and I always had a dream of moving down to North Carolina because her parents were in Winston-Salem. Okay. Um, so we wanted to move down here. We weren't exactly sure where, but we knew we wanted to move somewhere near Raleigh-Durham and this was just the perfect transition. So, you know, she encouraged me to apply for the job. She was like, you know, we can't say you're going to get a position. You can just turn in your materials and we'll see what happens. And, um, so I turned them all in and I think a month later I got a call that I had an interview for the job. Um, I interviewed, I remember I prepared like nights and days for that interview to make sure that I knew exactly what I was talking about. And uh, personally, I think I nailed the interview. It was, I, I confirmed it later with them because I got the job and, you know, they talked about me being a, the best candidate. But, um, when I moved down to Durham, <clears throat> that's that was one of the most special times of my life. And the reason I say that is because I got to work in a clinic called the psychosocial rehab and recovery center for individual veterans who had serious mental illness. I'm talking about schizophrenia, you know, bipolar disorder. Um, you know, we had some borderline personality disorder, severe chronic complex PTSD patients. Um, and I recognize that, these people, I, I, you know, back when I was younger, you see somebody who had schizophrenia and you'd say, what a weird person. But when you really sit down and you get to know them, <clears throat> you realize that there are people just like you are that are struggling with something that you can't comprehend. And sometimes they're just looking for somebody to talk to. And when they're well, they're the most wonderful people in the world. But when they're having like psychosis, you know, people oftentimes don't, don't 
communicate to them in the right way. Um, and that, that's one of the biggest reasons that you have, you know, people with mental illness not not connecting to others is they're they're treated really terribly by other people. Um, family members, you know, they, they try to put up with it in the beginning and then they kind of lose faith. They, they kind of give up and throw their hands up. Um, and that's unfortunate. And we just don't have the capacity to be able to serve these people in communities, um, for many reasons. Um, but I, I tell you what, you know, that, that experience was one of the most memorable experiences I ever had in my life. How long did you work with that? part of the organization. I, I worked three years for the DCVA medical center and then two years for Durham. Okay. With the psychosocial psychosocial rehab and recovery center. Okay. Mm -hmm. So at that point, had you started going back to school? Yeah. So, um, because of the way that I, I left school, I had debt, um, that I had to pay off. And initially when I got out of the military, I had the Montgomery GI bill. Uh -huh. I didn't have this fancy, um, post nine 11. And I wasn't service connected because I never really went to the VA. Yeah. But when I when I moved to Durham was when I started looking into service connected disability, that kind of thing. Um, and I decided one day that it was time to go back to school. So I had to take out, you know, a personal loan, personal loan to pay off Penn State. I found out about the vocational rehab program through the VA, which is separate from the GI Bill. Okay. Uh, but that that's something for people who have service-connected disability. And it works just like the GI Bill. It just takes from a different pot of money, and you can keep your GI Bill. So okay. it's an out. know about that. Yeah, it's an No, believe me. And one of the reasons I, I wanted to be on this podca podcast is be able to kind of share that information with other veterans that don't Absolutely. know about it. So yeah. if, if you are service-connected... Um, and you have a, a verified disability, look into the vocational. Actually, they just changed the name of it, but it's called the Veteran the veteran Readiness and Employment. Can we look it up? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, Veteran Readiness and Employment. Okay. Um, formerly known as the Voc uh, rehab. Voca yeah, <laughs> Vocational Rehab and Employment. Yeah, so uh, one of the reasons that I agreed to come on this podcast or wanted to come on this podcast is to shed light on some of the things that people don't know are available. And one of those things is the uh, Veteran Readiness and Employment Program through the VA. Um, it was previously called Voc Rehab, Vocational Rehabilitation, but they changed the name of it. Um, and that's for people who have a verified service-connected disability. Um, so any veterans out there that are listening, please look look into the Veteran Readiness and Employment um, Program. You can find it on the VA website. Just click through the links. You apply. They do a screening at Winston-Salem, North Carolina, determine whether or not you're eligible. They start working on personal goals, and you can get your schooling paid for free. Uh, in my case, I was able to get my undergrad paid for free. Um my grad school paid as well. So through the voc rehab through the voc rehab. That's wow. right. So I, I graduated with a degree in psychology from Penn state, a degree, uh, a master of social work from the university of North Carolina and a master of public health from university of North Carolina and voc rehab paid for all that. And I didn't touch my data. You still have your GI bill. That's correct. That's incredible. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> I'm a big fan. <laughs> mm -hmm. I've never even heard of this. Okay, so you went back to school, you got your degree in psychology from Penn State, and then you went over to UNC um, while you were working at the Durham VA? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So I was working at the Durham VA. I went over to UNC and, uh, you know, I, I applied for the social work program 
because somebody initially, two of my coworkers actually, um, they told me I should be a social worker. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, okay, I'll apply for the program. Look, nobody in my family had ever graduated college. So I was the number one for that, right? The first person. And certainly nobody ever got in a higher education. So I was like, well, why not? I'll give it a shot. I did not expect to get in. Um, so I wrote everything I needed to do. I, I turned in all the stuff that I needed to turn in. And I found out that I was accepted in the program. Um, when I started to go and get my social work degree, um, I met a guy by the name of Gary Cuddeback. He was the liaison between um, the school social work and the school of public health. And he was like, hey, why don't you just get a dual degree? He's a really cool dude. He was yeah. like, you know, why don't you just get a get a uh, public health degree while you're getting the, you know, the social work degree? I was like, well, how do I do that? Yeah. And he's like, we have this dual degree program that you can do. And I was like, sweet. And um, I contacted my voc rehab uh, counselor at that time. And she said, let me talk to my supervisor. She talked to her supervisor, got back to me, said, go ahead and apply for it. I applied for that. Not expecting it in again. You got to realize that the first time when I went to college, I was getting like asked. My my GPA was like a negative five. <laughs> you know, like it, it was pretty bad. Yes. Um, but you know, because of my work in psychology and all that kind of stuff, and because you know I had a, a background in recovery, I was able to get into that program. Um, there was I, I had a suspicion they were going to take everybody from the school of social work into the program, um, but they didn't. I mean, they they actually selected the students and I was like, holy crap, like this was actually competitive. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I got into the School of Public Health and that's when I started to really learn the difference between, you know, micro level social work, which is like individual level, yeah. you know, macro level social work, which is societal and then public health, which is its own beautiful monster. Okay. So you, you held... I said couple of hats, but really three hats. You have a master's of public health, you're a social worker, and you're a veteran. Mm-hmm. Um, how how have you used those three hats or positions to kind of influence what the work that you do now? It, I mean, the veteran hat comes; it, it's invaluable um, because when I connect with people, I work. Uh, you know, just now for the Durham VA Medical Center, I work as a suicide prevention case manager, also as a social worker at the Raleigh 2 CBOC, and I see individual patients for psychotherapy. And the minute they find out I'm a veteran, it, it just builds immediate trust. Um, it's yeah. just, you start speaking the same language. I'm not, I'm not the typical therapist, and I'll say that. My patients, if you're listening, I know. Uh, I'm not the typical um, social worker who's, going to patronize or feel sorry or anything. I'm the guy that's going to say, you know, let's get to work. You know, I I do the assessment and we sit down and we talk, we get to know each other. You know, they say, you know, disclose if necessary. I like to disclose, um, you know, just some of the information up front to let them know that, you know, I'm, I'm one of you. I've sat in that chair behind, you know, that you're sitting in. You know, we can do this together. We just have to build that therapeutic alliance and you need to we need to trust each other. So our first two sessions are generally, you know, the trust and building rapport. And then after that, we really start to get to work. And, you know, I get the best results when when people tend to trust and understand and know that I'm reliable, know that I'm there for them. Yeah. So not only do they have that rapport and trust because you're a veteran, but you've also been through that same or similar situation that they've been through. Yeah, absolutely. That's incredible. Yeah. 
we talked a little bit about this uh, in your case with social isolation and loneliness after they leave, after people leave the service. Why do you think that that happens? And, and then how does it impact their mental health, in your opinion? That social well, isolation. Absolutely. Um, I think it's a complex, complex answer. Uh, I, I think realistically, um, it starts with the Department of Defense. Um, people who transition out of the military, especially, you know, when I was in, I don't know if it's different now, but when I was in the Marine Corps and I was transitioning out, I didn't get any support. Um, they were like, all right, you're leaving, whatever you go back home, you do whatever you want. Um, we had some taps course classes. It was like a three day class where they, you know, sat up there and basically spoke down to you for a couple of days. And then, you know, you, you, you went to your, your final unit and you just kind of sat there and didn't really do much. And then you transitioned out. So during that time, I, it's my firm belief that, you know, it's, it's DOD's responsibility to help to start transitioning veterans to or military members to that veteran status immediately. Yeah. You know, we spend three months or, you know, whatever the amount of time is for boot camp. I know for Marines it's 13 weeks, but <clears throat> you spend all this time in boot camp. You're in the military during a very vulnerable period of time called early emerging adulthood. And that's generally between 18 and the late 20s. Yeah. Um, and that's where you're developing your self-identity. So you're already identifying as a Marine, a sailor, you know, as a uh, a soldier, an airman, um, and, and also Coast Guard and Space Force. I'm not sure what they call people in the Space Force right now. Any idea? Guardians. Okay. So very cool. Gotcha. Yeah, that is that is pretty neat. That okay. is very cool. To all you guardians out there, um, I understand um a lot of people don't understand what you're doing or and why you're there. I understand, you know, from a higher level that you're there for multi multi multi-domain operations. Um, so we need, you know, not, not only the land, the air, the sea, you know, we need people protecting our borders. We need protect we need protection from space and we certainly need protection from cyber. So I yeah. appreciate everything that you do. So, um, yeah, leaving, you know, I, I remember going to these courses, the, you know, the three day course and then sitting in the battery. I think it's the DOD's responsibility to start training people early on how to become a civilian again. Um, you know, we spend however long in boot camp, depending on the service. Um, and then, you know, when you transition out, you're not really given any information. Um, and, and it differs. I mean, if you look at different veteran populations, you can look at people who are uh, retiring, retire. They don't generally have as rough of a time because they, they spent their whole life in the military and, you know, they get their military pension and they usually there's a level of stability. That's right. Family, you know, and they, they, they understand like they usually keep it close to the vest. They, they, they can stay with in close proximity and work as a contractor for the military, or they'll find something that, that works within their level. I mean, yeah. Uh, but people who are generally, you know, enlisted from rank to E1 to E4, E5, something like that, who spend their first four years and then get out, they're not getting any of those transition services. And I think it's vital for um, DOD and, and people who are involved to understand that we need to teach people the skills that they need to survive in community we need to explain what they're running into you know before you go on a mission in combat you come up with a plan 
you know, that plan may not work out. And it usually doesn't. I mean, things usually go haywire, but you adapt and you overcome. That's right. just something that you do. Yeah. But um, at least you have a plan. That's correct. Or at least you have a plan. That you can work off of. That's right. And veterans who get out of the military, they don't really have a plan. Yeah. The, the great majority, though, they get out, they think things are going to be great. They think they're going to go to school, but they don't know what they're going to go to school for. They don't have that idea on how to utilize the um, that transition as a strength and say, OK, I can take these things that I did in the military and I can translate them in a resume onto into civilian language and I can use that to to leverage and find a new job. But they don't understand that um, because we don't teach them. Um as far as food goes, you know, finding an apartment, these are essential life skills that college students figure out, right? Yeah. They learn how to live in a dorm with other people and get along. Um, people who are in the military, you're forced in a barracks with somebody, unless you're married or something else, but you're forced in a barracks with somebody, you move around a lot, you don't really, you know, you stay with your buddies and then all of a sudden your buddies are gone. Everybody's gone yeah. and you're on your own. Um, so that's, that's kind of where it starts. And then, you know, once you get to the community, and I'd like to take a second to kind of define what I mean by community. So you can look at communities from different levels. You can look at it as a county. You can look at it as a city, a town, a neighborhood, right? But we can also break it down a little bit more granular and we can talk about work communities. We could talk about faith communities. We could talk about student communities, you know, and we can look at these different. That's where people get confused about public health. They're like, oh, what do you mean by community? I, I, you know, we mean these different areas that veterans participate with other people that could be a, uh, a way to uplift them in the community. Yeah. You know, and I know that um, I mentioned to you before was. You know, one of the biggest and most uh, one of the strongest connections I had was when I went to Penn State for the second time, uh, I found their veteran uh, student veteran organization. And I, that I never felt so comfortable sharing with other people. Yeah. I mean, there was there was no stigma. Everybody just laid everything on the table. We drank a lot. Um, that's, you know, par for the course. But um, we shared everything with each other. We worked on projects that were veteran related yeah. or at least, you know, attached sure. to veterans. Uh, we started to kind of understand, you know, that veterans are not just isolated in communities there. They have their families. They have other support that they're looking for. So community to us really means the places that they participate and the places that they can find senses of strength to feel better in communities. Yeah. And that kind of reminds me what we talked about earlier with the whole like primary, secondary and tertiary prevention of suicide or a mental health crisis. Um, and we talked about the, how those levels differ. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so we can pick any, um, any outcome that we'd like, but let's use veteran suicide, for example. Sure. Um, so what are these things that mitigate veteran suicide? Right. Well, we can talk about that, but to understand that, we need to look at tertiary, secondary, and primary prevention. Um, we'll start with tertiary because that's that's the one that everybody understands. Tertiary prevention is, you can kind of imagine um, someone who's running towards like a cliff and uh, they're about to jump. We'll use a fireman in, uh, analogy, actually. So somebody's, you know, caught in a fire in a building and they're in a window and they're about to jump down to the firemen who have that, um, the thing to catch them, yeah, you know, what whatever, whatever that's called. <laughs> and, uh, they're about to jump out the window or, you know, they already landed on that, that 
pad. Um, that's tertiary prevention for something like suicide or mental health crisis. We're looking at people who are calling the veterans crisis line because they're an immediate crisis. This is acute. This is yeah. emergent. Yeah. Um, these are people who are struggling right now and they need help. People who are transported to the hospital are offered emergency services. They can go on a psych unit and they can, you know, kind of get medications to stabilize them. That's all tertiary prevention. Okay. <clears throat> if we take a step back and we look at um, secondary prevention, utilizing the same metaphor, maybe the fire metaphor, you know, what do we have in place to prevent, prevent the fire? You know, do we, are the outlets all installed correctly? Do you have the correct wiring in the correct gauge wiring, that kind of thing? Um, do you have, uh, you know, I'm going to get a little bit, you know, construction like, but, you know, do you have a uh, ground fault circuit uh, protectors in the in the bathroom yeah right that kind of thing these are all things that are available to kind of prevent that from happening in the mental health world we're looking at people like social workers psych techs um, psychiatrists psychologists all these people who veterans or people gen general people in the civilian society go to to prevent them from getting to the cliff primary prevention is looking at stepping back even further and looking at the community level, right? What's available in this community that are protective to keep people from running towards the cliff. Yeah. So, you know, we've been, been able to identify certain things like um, a healthy workplace culture, culture that's supportive to veterans, um, veteran inclusive programming in academic institutions, that kind of thing. Um, Let's see if we were to pick another one. Transportation, maybe. Um, are there veteran-specific um, community partners out there that can provide, you know, transportation for veterans to not only get to appointments but also to to get to things in their general life? Yeah. So these are upstream protective Up factors. That's really what the project's focused on. Our building better and healthy communities project is these upstream, very far removed from that level of crisis but that prevent it um yeah way ahead of time that's so. correct yeah so you're looking at real prevention uh and and, and you know it, if we look at it from the dod standpoint you know veterans transitioning out if you were to create something and i'm not suggesting this but i'm saying it could be something worth looking into if you were to look into something that was a couple of months long that provided education for veterans or, or transitioning service members um, that allowed them to understand kind of like what they're running into, uh, how to communicate with the people in your family about what you went through. Maybe we can work on reducing stigma, teaching them life skills, that kind of thing. That's the stuff that you do up front to prevent the person from unsuccessfully transitioning to military society. So, I mean, we, we're looking at it from the other side, which is the veteran side, which is you know, people who've already transitioned. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to build these communities where veterans thrive and they live meaningful and healthy lives. Very good. This also reminds me of what you'd shown me earlier about the vital conditions versus, I uh, forget what it was called. Yeah, there was vital conditions versus urgent services. Can you describe those? Yeah. So if you look at the vital conditions for uh, well-being, and, and this comes from healthaffairs.org. Um, 
you could you could talk on on one side there's a wheel, but on the one side it talks about the basic needs for health and safety, lifelong learning, meaningful work and wealth, humane housing, thriving natural world, and then reliable transportation. These are all vital conditions. On the other side, it's juxtaposed with urgent services. So acute care for illness or injury, addiction treatment, uh, crime, crime response, environmental cleanup, unemployment and food assistance, homeless services. They're like the urgent side. Obviously, they all interact with each other. You know, if you look at humane housing versus homeless services, homeless services are like places like shelters, yeah. right? So you take a shelter that's somewhere where somebody can have a place to live for, for a very short time. But after that, you know, it's, it's kind of up to the person to go find housing. So one is more on the prevention side and then the other is more like the recovery. That's right. On the urgent side of things, right? Humane housing, uh, on the other hand is creating these places where people can live and learn and they can get their basic needs met. You know, shelters are emergency, but humane housing would be like, you know, um, affordable, uh, apartments for people who are below income, Yeah, you know, and, uh, essentially ensuring that they have the nutrition that they need to stay healthy. Yeah. Right. And, um, with people who have places that they are stably living, you know, you meet, you meet their basic needs. You think about what's that song, you know, the bare necessities, you yeah. know, think about that. Yeah. You got food, water, you got a roof over your head. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm thinking of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. School. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So you think about that stuff and you think if you can meet these basic needs, then you can start to leverage the other needs and you can try to start to figure out, you know, what else is working. Uh, one of the big things about our project is we're trying to figure out the risk and protective factors related to veteran suicide. And we're trying to figure out what makes a community healthy. Right. So we're, we're and what I love about this project, is, uh, you know, in many instances people are looking at kind of like the negative outcomes the the risk factors right but they don't pay attention to the protective factors the things that are um really allowing people in communities to thrive yeah. and that's that's kind of where we're different it's you know how can we take these existing resources and combine them so that we can have we can have veterans who live in these communities have the best um, possible way of life. I really, yeah. And then prevent that secondary. And of course the tertiary outcomes or prevention mm-hmm. just starting way upstream with that primary type. Yeah. Keep them away from the cliff. Yeah. Very good. Um, so in your work, um, I'm sure you've had some, some victories with, with veterans and some, could you share, <coughs> share one or a couple maybe of, of, times where that you've been working with veterans. I could think of one instance where it took like one thing to really get somebody um, to start moving forward. They called the veterans crisis line and they were um, having issues with food insecurity. Um, <clears throat> so as a social worker, I looked up, um, homeless services in their, in their, um, in their community. I reached out to our uh, homeless program to try and figure out what resources are available. And, um, we were able to get that veteran fed that, that first day. Um, that veteran also had never reached out to mental health services before, and they weren't even enrolled in VA healthcare. Um, so when I spoke to the veteran again, 
Uh, I said, what are your thoughts on, you know, enrolling in VA healthcare? And the guy said, well, I don't even know if I'm eligible. So I, I contacted somebody from eligibility and we got him enrolled. And uh, because it was a suicide, we, we also had, he had some uh, suicidal crisis um, during that time. So we were able to enroll him in care. Um, and then I started to see him as a social worker. And uh, we started working on his basic needs. So, so after a couple of months, he actually ended up getting service connected for disability at the 100% level. Wow. So it was like that one, it was like that one thing, you know, providing him with, you know, food so that he could eat that motivated him to start coming to see somebody so that he can work on his personal recovery. Right. And throughout that time, I mean, there was just, you know, it was wild ups and downs over the six months or so that I worked with this individual. But, you know, I can say that, you know, from the minute that he walked in. I think he'd been battered and beaten down so much that he really wanted help. And, you know, he wanted somebody to kind of, I think that people in general, when they're experiencing crisis, they just want somebody to listen to him. This guy didn't have any family members and he just wanted somebody to hear what he had to say. And I think it's important to recognize that we need to listen to understand and not listen to respond. Yes. Yes. That is crucial. Yeah. So um, I listened to what he had to say and then I use you know, different skills that I learned as a social work to, to kind of repeat back to him what he said so that he knew that it was understanding. Uh, and we developed a really close relationship and, um, you know, I made suggestions along the way and he would always come through because he trusted the things that I had to say. And it wasn't too much longer. I mean, he had his own apartment. Yeah, man, it's amazing. He had his own apartment, um, because we did therapy the right way, I think, uh, we spoke about money management. So when he got that first initial check, he didn't just spend it all. We talked about budgeting and we ensured that he he was, you know, spending it appropriately. Uh, he saved up for a vehicle. He bought a beater, like a $2,000 vehicle, just to get him from point A to point B. We got him connected with another program for vocational rehab. And um, he got employment. So he was working as a security officer. Um, and then... We worked on, you know, just some of the things that he experienced when he was in the military. This guy was, he was a non-combat veteran, um, but he'd experienced military, military sexual trauma, which it still happens for men, believe it or not. So we were able to work through that process, kind of talk about that process. And, um, you know, after about six months, I stopped seeing the veteran, but he'd call me every now and then and he'd say, you know, I just want to say thank you for helping me through this difficult transition. Um, you know, and, and the services that I connected into, yeah, many of them were VA, but there was a good amount of services he was able to connect in the community. Um, and actually just him finding a vehicle. I mean, he found a vehicle because I told him to go and speak to, I went, I told him to go to a veterans event and he spoke to someone at, I can't remember what they call them. They call them mental health stand downs, I believe. <clears throat> he spoke to a guy at a stand down who said he was selling an old car. So he went to the stand down. He, he worked with this guy. He gave him $2,000. He got a vehicle. I mean, like, it's little things like that, little motivations. I think one of the most important things in mental health is hope. And this guy learned that, you know, regardless of how bad things get, I can always be hopeful that things will get better in the future. Yeah. You know, so there's one, there's one that's small, 
Um, but this is one that always sticks with me. Um, it, it's just a really cool story. So I, I was working with a veteran um, when I was working for the Psychosocial Rehab and Recovery Center. And um, severe depression, um, social isolation. He was married, but he didn't really speak to his wife. He had kids. They were all grown out of the house. And he um, he just had chronic suicidal ideation. Um, he hospitalized many times for it. At one point, he just completely left and drove out to some western state to find the correct place to go, you know, complete the suicide. Luckily, he decided against that and he came back <clears throat> and we started working together. And I started working on individual things that would kind of get him out of bed in the morning. And I said, regardless of what you do, you need to bank your bed. I mean, this is this is common military stuff. You need to bank your bed. You need to open your blinds. He's like, yeah, I, I don't really open my blinds. And I was like, okay, well, let's work on that, right? So started working on opening his blinds. And he did that for about a week. And we continued to build up. Okay, now what's your personal hygiene look like? You know, let's work on this. So we started very bare bones, um, but we worked up to bigger projects. And um, the cool thing about this story is I, I actually, that's that's when I went to school. So I had to leave the medical center. Um but I spoke to a, um, a colleague and the colleague said that, um, you know, that veteran brought me up during one of their clinical sessions. And, um, he said that every, every time he, <laughs> he wakes up in the morning and he opens his blinds, he says, good morning, Mike. And, 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 you know, <laughs> to me, that was one of the coolest things was like, you know, I, I initiated this very small behavior in somebody, but it stuck with him enough and it's like he greets me every morning. I'm like, I every you know, it's stuff like that. Like every morning I wake up, I know that there's somebody who says, Good morning, Mike. And that's good enough for me, dude. Well, it's because you care about you care about his well being. Mm -hmm. And he that's how he I think that's how he maybe recognizes that by acknowledging you every morning. Yeah, exactly. That's and amazing. It, yeah, and it keeps him keeps him going, I guess, you know, which is and if you can find those little things that keep you going or initiate some sort of start, you know, don't let things get in your way. Don't let anything stop you. Just continue uh, completing different missions that you have. I think setting goals is one of the most important things in mental health recovery. And then complete, they got to be specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, timely. You know, we call them smart goals, but we got to make them easy enough to to complete to digest that you could start to gain traction in some part of your life now that's the clinical side um on the public health side you know the difference is we're not looking at these individual veterans we're looking at veterans as a population and what are the struggles that the veteran population is facing you can't do one without the other you know there's always going to be a lot of need for urgent crisis or urgent services. It's always going to, I mean, in any realm of life, not just mental health, you, know, you can talk about physical health, emergency services are vital. Regarding things like veteran suicide, we're looking at how can we get ahead of this thing? You know, um, so we look at the data and we, um, we can see that 50% of suicide is um, as a result of having a firearm are completed by firearm. We know that as being a fact. We know that male veterans utilize handguns or weapons in general more freak frequently than females. They're, they're more lethal. 
you know, the, the, the number of males who complete suicide is higher than it is in, in, in females. We don't have the data on the LGBT community, but we do know that they are at much higher risk than in general population for things like mental illness, stigma, uh, discrimination, that kind of thing. Um, and that's something that I think society is starting to recognize. Although, you know, it, it, it's so separated that it's a touchy issue to talk about. Things like teaching people how to properly use a firearm or utilizing methods like keeping a firearm outside of reach of the ammunition during a crisis. I'm not saying at all, all times, but if you feel like you're having a mental health crisis, you know, don't be afraid to reach out and say, hey, I need you to hold my guns for a couple of days. Whatever. I, there's there, By no means am I saying take your guns away. What I'm saying is that if you're in this the mental health space that you feel like things aren't going to work out, things are over, there's no hope for the future, and you have that intent that you're going to end your life, the best thing you can do is to reach out for help and just get those lethal means out of your possession. Um, and of course, afterwards, you know, if you, if you get better, get them back. It's yeah. fine. Yeah. Um, that's a public health approach to, you know, veteran suicide, you know, reducing uh, lethal means so that we can reduce the number of people who are dying by suicide. Similar to that, what are some roadblocks that veterans have with accessing care? Or, I mean, I think this is in a public health realm as well, like being able to a, be eligible for care a, either with the VA or with other means. Yeah. Or, or even just something like transportation. Yeah, I, I'm glad you asked that question because, you know, currently in the state of North Carolina, we know that in and around 40% of people who are veterans are um, eligible, not only eligible, they're, they're utilizing uh, service for the VA. So, you know, there's an estimate out there. It's between 700 and 800,000 veterans. But of course, veterans are transient and we know, we don't know exactly how many veterans we have in North Carolina. But if you were to take 60% of that 800,000, I guess that'd work out to be about 480,000. Yeah, sounds about uh, right. Yeah. So if you take about 480,000 of those veterans, they're not even enrolled in VA service. So what's going on in that population? You know, if we can't get the data, well... Many of them live in rural settings. And as we all know, we can define rural as being places with, you know, um, a large area of land and a low number of people proportional to that area of land. Right. And if we look at the map and we look at healthcare centers in the, the rural settings, we can see that they're sparse. So access, access to care is very difficult. On top of that, the VA... They're spread few and far between, you know, big VA medical centers. Uh, and then they have the CBOX, uh, which are community-based outpatient clinics, and they also have the vet centers. So they have these places, but they're spaced out. And again, they're more concentrated in these urban areas. So if we look at people who are rural, they have less access to health care. They have um, outcomes. Their life expectancy is less than those who live in urban settings. They have less access to resources. So it's very hard for them to get health care. On top of that, if we look at the, the policy level, this is above the community, right? And these are the things that affect veterans' lives. We could look at things like the Mission Act and the Compact Act. 
and how they change, you know, what people are eligible for. Now, the Compact Act, you know, it opened up people who are in a suicidal crisis. So, you know, somebody who goes to an urgent care facility or they go to an emergency room, um, they can get. And and I, I'm not going to speak too much about the specifics of the program because I don't want to give the wrong information, but they can go to an urgent care or they can go to an emergency center emergency care center, and they can get um, treatment for that suicidal crisis. And I believe it's up to 30 days of inpatient hospitalization re- related to that illness. Um, things like the Mission Act opened yes, up. Yes, that's correct. I just okay. wanted to do the fact check there. 30, <laughs> awesome. You can, you are eligible for um, 30 days of inpatient care or and 90 days of outpatient care as well. Yeah, thank you for looking that up. Yeah. Um, you know, but the issue is like, who's eligible for these things, right? Uh, and if you look at the eligibility requirements, you have to have at least 24 consecutive months of active duty military service, or you have to have a service service related, uh, service connected disability related to military service. Now, it's interesting because we, if we start to think about the people like in the National Guard. You know, if they stayed in the guard and just did their guard activities, they're not going to be eligible for VA health care because they're not going to have that 24 consecutive months. We look at people who are discharged, you know, say within that two year period. Right. And let's just say we look back at somebody in the 1990s or something and they were having issues with like alcohol or something, behavior issues. Nowadays, we can define that as, you know, behavioral health and they get discharged under maybe medical or, you know, other than dishonorable conditions. Back then, they were probably discharged other than or other than honorable. Right. And an article I read yesterday from earlier this year talked about how I think it was 114,000 are estimated in the LGBTQ community since World War II have been discharged other than honorably. Mm-hmm. You know, before before the don't ask, don't tell repeal came into place so about, I think, 12 years ago. That's right. Yeah. So there's that. And then there's, you know, the people who. And by the way, I just want to mention, uh, if you are in that community and you have been discharged under other than honorable conditions, you can go to the VA and you can become eligible now. So you can reach out to the VA. Yeah, I think the the best the best path for them to actually go to is to a veteran service officer. So somebody like the VFW or DAV, um, they work with individuals who had other than honorable conditions, and they may be able, may able to do a discharge upgrade to something then that's other than dishonorable, so that they can they can actually apply for service connected conditions and they can get into the VA. Yeah, um, yeah, it's important to fact to note that. You know, there are these wonderful communities that connect veterans to benefits. And uh, if you're looking for somebody, just look for your, your local veteran service officer. I mean, okay. we're, we're working in Alamance, Alamance County, County, and I think her name is Tammy Crawford, I hope. Um, and Tammy does veterans benefits and that kind of thing. So you can always reach, reach out to her or you can just find your local DAV, VFW, reach out to them and they'll, they'll help set you up with that. Um, but, you know, speaking on the, the folks who are ineligible for VA health care, um, what are they supposed to do? 
right? If they don't qualify for the Mission Act or the Compact Act, you know, they have to either pay out out of out of, out of pocket or they have to get a large medical bill. Um, and that's simply because they're not enrolled or something. So I think that, you know, the VA has an interest in trying to enroll more people. But outside of the VA, I think communities need to understand that veterans are always at higher risk than the civilian population across the board. Yeah. You look at mental illness, they're higher risk of mental illness. You look at suicidality, much higher risk. Suicidality, homelessness, much higher. Um, food insecurity, much higher. So v- veterans are an at-risk population and the community members or peoples that are in specific communities can do things to create a culture where veterans feel a sense of belonging and support. And I, I think, you know, at the heart of this message is that there's no wrong door. Um, you know, there's, there's no place that a veteran should be able to go that can't help a veteran. The beautiful thing about this project is that veterans have such a positive social social construction across the aisle. This is kind of a nonpartisan issue. I think that most people can get behind caring and supporting veterans. Um, and that's why I think this, this project is really, really valuable. Um, and in fact, you know, for longevity's sake, if we could build veteran healthy communities in one county, we can do it for others and maybe we can do it nationally. And then maybe we can use this as a model in communities to build healthy communities for everyone. Yeah. You know, the, the possibilities are endless. That's it's going to take, cool. yeah, it's going to take a lot of work to get there, but you know, realistically in the next, you know, 10 years or something, maybe we can come up with ideas to start to, you know, re- reduce discrimination in, in communities and provide healthy places for people to, um, to exist and, and start to get along. I mean, it, this, this country is becoming more and more polarized as, as we see. And, um, it's being more and more, yeah, keep that in there. Uh, no, but I think that, uh, <laughs> I love that um, you know, I think that, you know, as this, this project continues and certainly in the future, um, we could start taking the things that we learned and we could start to apply it to the civilian side. One thing that gets missed a lot um, with veteran care is the role of family members. And that cuts across, you know, if we look at it from from a time standpoint, when veterans get out, family members should have an understanding of how to treat their, their veteran who's just getting out of service or how to help their veteran, how help support them. They don't get any education. Wives, uh, husbands, um, partners, they don't get education on how to how to help their service member transition out. Um, additionally, there's this. There's t- <laughs> well, and there's, it, who's there to help them too? Exactly. Right? Like the caregiver support, mm-hmm. so to speak, you know, um, who is there? You know, they don't have all the taps or the, you know, all these organizations that I can rattle off, but, you know, mm-hmm. so. They don't. Family um, members are often overlooked. Yeah, they are. And, um, you know, they're, they're kind of the backbone of um, of service members because without many of them, you know, service members wouldn't be able to cl- complete the mission that they they do complete, or, you yeah. know, the missions that they have to succeed in. So I think we need to take a hard look at, you know, veterans care in general. I think we need to start looking at 
um, these upstream factors, which we are doing in this project, but we need to pay more clo close attention to the unenrolled population of the VA, the 60% who are not enrolled. And we need to find solutions for communities to help uplift, uplift those veterans in their communities so they can, they can really thrive. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mike. Mm -hmm. I think it's important to mention as part of this episode, different resources for veterans or their family members or anyone listening today, if they are feeling concerns of suicide or um, thoughts of suicide or um, feeling like you're going through a mental health crisis, can you list some, some different resources? So if you're experiencing something like homelessness, you can call the uh, National Call Center for Homeless Veterans. Uh, they'll connect you to resources. They'll, they'll try to get you immediate housing. Um, if you're experiencing a mental health crisis, and I'll, I'll say this out loud, I don't care if you're enrolled, unenrolled, anything, um, even the civilian side, call 988. 988 are there to help you. And that, that formerly known as the crisis, crisis line, but they changed it to 988. Um, call that number and get the, um, get the care that you need. Speak to a responder and they'll connect you to the resource that you need. That's one of the best resources and tools that you can, you have available. Um, veteran specific issues, you can press one and that'll connect you to somebody who specializes in, in veteran care. Um, That's when you call 988, you, 988. you can dial one, yeah. get veteran specific care. That's right. And that's not only for veterans, that's for family members who are concerned about their veteran family member. They could say, oh, you know, I haven't seen, you know, uncle for, for two weeks. I, I fear that I don't know. I don't know if he's even alive. You know, they'll they'll call a local sheriff's department and they'll they'll do a well check and they'll check in check in on that veteran to see if he's okay or not or she's okay or they they are okay. Good to know. Yeah. So that's another um, you know national hotline. Um, of course, you know there are homeless shelters in your area that you can just present to if you're experiencing homelessness. Yeah. Um, Domestic violence. Um, if you're experiencing domestic violence, you can call. So there's the National Domestic Violence Hotline, which is at 1-800-799-7233. Um, that's, the, that's the national level hotline. Um, the VA also has the Intimate, Intimate Partner Violence Assistance Program that you can look on uh, online through their uh, website. There are some sensitive subjects, and I, I want to make sure that if anyone is feeling I'm feeling thoughts of suicide. Yeah, uh, if people are having um, thoughts of suicide or uh, feelings that they may complete a suicide, um, please don't please don't hesitate to call 988. I mean, we, we need to we need to get you into care. Life is worth living for. There's always hope. I, I understand that your personal situations may leave you feeling hopeless. Um, a lot of that may be due to the social determinants of health or these upstream factors that we're talking about. Um, additionally, it might be things that are within your own mind, your thoughts, your feelings, your behaviors. Um, and if these things are uh, contributing to you feeling suicidal, um, we want to help. I mean, I think as, as a society, human beings just want to help other human beings. That's what we do. That's what we do to connect with each other. And I, I can promise you that if you call 988 or you call uh, another crisis line, you will find caring veterans or caring people at the other end 
that are going to point you in the right direction and offer you uh, emergency services within your own community. For veterans who are service-connected, I want to say that due to um, the Compact Act, um, you know, we talked about it a little bit before, but you can go to a local ER for pretty much any issue um, if you're service-connected. And it's any ER, not not just a VA. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You can go to any medical center for any medical reason that's deemed an emergency. Okay. And you can get take you can get care. Um and the VA will cover that. The VA will expenses. cover that expense. That's okay. right. Um additionally, on top of that, if you look at the VA's website, you can see VA approved urgent care centers. If you're experiencing a cold or COVID-like symptoms or anything that you'd have to go to urgent care for. The process is to look up that that urgent care center in your community, go to that urgent care uh, facility, let them know that you're a veteran, and they're supposed to call the um, the VA line to let them know that they have a veteran patient. Um, it's important to inform people that you know if they don't make that call, you need to you need to ensure that they make that call. Otherwise, you're going to start getting bills, and it's going to get frustrating. But um, they need to call, and then after that, your services are going to be completely free. That's great. I I didn't even know about that before. So thanks, yeah. Mike. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks so much for joining me today. I've learned a lot. Um, I'm looking forward to working more with you on the project, mm-hmm. and hope you have a great week. It was an accident. <laughs> It was it was an absolute pleasure being here, and I uh, also, you know, am excited about continuing to work with you and yeah. with all our wonderful colleagues on this project. I'd like to name uh, Von Upshaw uh, and Amy McHale and Annie uh, Imsice and Daniel Reyes and all the people that we're working with, Jennifer Abrams, and uh, I'd like to say thank you to them. And as, on top of that, I mean, Von is the whole reason that I'm here. Um, I know you had a previous episode with Vaughn and I met her through the school of public health. I think she recognized my interest in the veteran community, my interest in veteran public health. And, uh, she's the one that really got me on this project and got me connected to the people I'm connected with. And I'm very grateful for her for, for always being there for me. So I just want to say thank you for that as well. I'd also like to, uh, to say thank you specifically to my wife who's been with me since 2004 um you are my rock you've uh you've been there through thick and thin and i appreciate all of your support and everything that you've done done for me you know in the past and i'm looking forward to a really bright and wonderful future and uh you know if my if my two kids grow up and you know they're old enough at some point to listen to this podcast um you can kind of hear some of the story that, you know, brought me to where I am now. And, uh, you know, just, just know that I'm always, I always love you and that, that you two are the, the best things I've ever had in my life. Thank you.